All right, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and, young, and the young child will put its hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand up a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome again to Trinity Community Church. Welcome to our fifth anniversary gathering. It's uh, amazing to say that. It feels so good to say that. Uh, I've got all the, the emotions going on, all of the gratitude as I reflect on the last five years, it's just, uh, it's overwhelming to think about five years ago today, starting our Sunday gatherings with like 35 adults and just all that we've seen the Lord do over the last five years, like, oh my goodness. And so, man, I am so, so full of gratitude and just like, not, not disbelief, uh, I mean, we, we went through some hard times, you know. I mean, there were some Sundays where it was like, are we really doing this? This is wild. We've got more bodies and Trinity kids than we've got in the auditorium. <laughs> I think we've moved five times in five years. Uh, we had this little global pandemic where we had to survive. And man, God has been so, so good. And I'm not going to say we made it or something, you know, but I mean, just, I mean, just look around. I mean, it's just amazing. Not just a miracle, but like 300 miracles. I think I could go around and with almost every single one of you, I know almost every single one of you, and just personally thank you for your incredible investment in this church, your your presence, your life, your service, your sacrifice, the time and energy you've given, the prayers that you've poured into this church. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely overwhelming. It is such an evidence of God's grace, such an evidence of his love for us that he would draw us into a place like this together. So I am, uh, I am just overwhelmed with gratitude uh, to the Lord for, for each and every one of you. And I know I say this all the time, but this is like just the most beautiful community I've ever seen. 
the most incredible, amazing group of people I've ever been around. This is the most incredible movement of God's spirit I've ever witnessed in my life and in my 15, 16 years of ministry, like no doubt, no question. And one of the things I I love about you, I thought about this week, it's that you are the most hopeful, like non-cynical, like non-pessimistic group of people I've ever been around. So we we live in in a very cynical world. You probably feel that, right? Like we live in a a world of kind of negativity and pessimism and and distrust of one another. And so cynicism is kind of like always in style. If you are a cynic, if you're skeptical, if you think things are just going to go wrong, if you love to talk about what's wrong with other people and with the world, you'll always have like somebody to talk to. It's like the easiest thing to talk about at work is like just everything that's wrong with other people, you know? But we just live in a, in a cynical, cynical world. We, we live in, in a world that just expects that bad things will happen and people are untrustworthy and that there is nothing bright and, and good and glorious ahead of us. And, and the reason I think you guys are different, it's, it's not because... It's not because you're, you're just putting on like a superficial type of, of happiness and peace where you're like, everything's great, everything's amazing, it's going great. And it's not because there's no like real suffering in our midst or that we've just got it all figured out and everybody's just smooth sailing. No, there is real struggle, there is real hurt, there is real pain. And what I'm talking about is not like a personality trait that you're just generally more optimistic than realistic. What I'm talking about is, is hope. Being, being a person of hope and being a community of hope. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about this morning is hope. That's what Isaiah 11 is about is hope. Hope is the, the forward-looking element of our faith. So if you think about our faith, our faith is not primarily intellectual, it's primarily relational. And the, the sort of present moment orientation of our faith, that's, that's trust, it's trusting God. The, the past orientation is gratitude, and then the future orientation of our faith is hope. Do we believe in God's promises? We are looking forward to a glorious ending to, to all of this, to all of creation, the, the story of humanity is all moving somewhere good by God's grace and because Jesus has come. And so we are, we are going to look at hope. We are going to lean into hope. And as I said, hope is relational. Because we want to understand what, what our hope really is, we have to understand today that our hope is a person. The hope of the world has come into the world, and his name is Jesus. That's what this passage is about. And so to understand our hope, we first have to understand who Jesus is. So today we're going to look at three things, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why we can put our hope in him. So let's pray. Let's thank God for what he's doing in our midst and ask for his blessing and his wisdom with this passage. Father, again and again, we just say thank you, thank you, thank you. What a, what a beautiful work you are doing in our midst. What beautiful people you are creating. What a beautiful community you are cultivating in our midst. 
Today, Lord, we we simply want to focus our eyes again on you and on your son. Would you reveal yourself to us as as we seek you? Would you let yourself be found by us as we knock at your door? Would you answer? Would you hear? Would you turn your face toward us? Lord, would you help us to get out of our own heads and and to focus on you? Would you reveal the the incredible hope that we have in Christ? The hope of a new creation, the hope of a, a bright, eternal future. Because of what you've done for us, God, because of your son's work on the cross, Lord, would you open our eyes to all these things this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So first question is, who is this Messiah? And we've been working through the prophetic book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And last week, Pastor Cam looked at Isaiah chapter 9. I loved his message, light into darkness. I was out sick last week. I'm still kind of recovering, but I caught it on the podcast. I had read it ahead of time. I always do that. But I caught it on the podcast and loved it. Light has come into darkness, this vision of Jesus' birth coming. But these, these visions of, of the bright future are, are sort of interspersed with the reality of, of Israel's failures and their spiritual rebellion and their apathy. And in chapter 10, when we reach the, the end of chapter 10, God, God is picturing symbolically a forest that has been completely cut down. So imagine a forest where every tree has been cut down to the stump right at ground level. And so there are no trees waving in the wind. There are no leaves falling. There are no birds circling overhead. There is no life. Everything looks dead. Everything looks lifeless. Everything looks hopeless. And then chapter 11 Verse 1 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And there's so much Hebrew imagery going on here, but picture this one stump, and it's called the stump of Jesse. Jesse, the references to Jesse frame the passage in in verse 1 and verse 10. Jesse was the father of David. David was the great king of Israel. He was the anointed one, the one on whom the spirit of God rested during his kingship. He was the the great king of all of Israel. He was the high point of Israel's history. And it's from the stump of David's family, Isaiah is saying a true and better David is going to come. What looks like like death, what looks like a a dead stump, a, a a little... Branch is coming up. A little sapling rises from the stump. There is life here. Verse 2, describing this Messiah who is to come from the tribe of David. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight In the fear of the Lord. See, this is a sort of contrast between Israel and Jesus. Israel is rebelling against God, but Jesus is the true Son of God who does the will of God. Israel does not fear the Lord, but Jesus will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
And so we're seeing this tension and this reference to the Holy Spirit is absolutely important because in the Old Testament times, the Spirit of God would descend on individuals just here and there for a moment or for a season, for a specific task in, in the story of God's redemption. But the Holy Spirit was not resting on all of the Israelites, but the Holy Spirit did rest on King David. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's why he prayed after his sin with Bathsheba that God not remove the Holy Spirit from him. And yet, the Spirit's empowering presence on David is still even nothing compared to what the Spirit's power will be like in the life of Jesus. The Son of God, fully empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding to lead God's people with wisdom. The Spirit of counsel and might to carry out the Father's divine plans. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Meaning he doesn't rely on human knowledge, but he relies on God's truth. Now this promise finds its fulfillment not only in the birth of Christ, but also in his baptism. In Matthew 3, we read this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. I mean, just imagine that, visually seeing heaven opened and the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven, so we have the Son, we have the Spirit descending, the voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is an absolutely unexpected turn in the course of human history because in this century that Isaiah was living in, it was a time of war, conflict, conquest, injustice, oppression. You know, these countries are just wiping each other out. It looks like there is no hope in all of the earth. Isaiah says, but wait. Look at, look at this tiny little bit of growth. In fact, a child is born. I mean, is there anything more unexpected, more helpless than a, than a newborn baby? The hope of the world is coming as a child. Now look at verse 3. Still describing what Jesus is like. It says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, sometimes when we read verse 4 and we see this line that, that he will judge the needy. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. In our, in our English language, in the way we use the word judge, we, we hear that as almost like condemn, that he will condemn the needy. And that's, that's not what it means in this context and in the Hebrew language, but rather it means he will achieve justice. He will achieve justice for who? The poor and needy. With righteousness, he will, he will decide cases on behalf of the poor and needy, the marginalized, the oppressed, the voiceless, the ones who have nothing. Now, justice is a, a popular message in our culture. We see injustice everywhere. We long for equality. 
And all of our human efforts are, are great. Education, social work, government programs, nonprofits, all, all of that is, is great and we should, should give ourselves to them. But, but a little bit of, of improvement, like 1% a year of improvement, except for the years that go like way backwards, that's not the hope of the world. Like we've got to feel and know that justice, if it was possible by our own human ingenuity, it would have happened by now. But we need justice from, from outside of our world to come in. We need one from outside of us who is all-powerful and who loves the poor and needy. And so while we want to give ourselves to all the human forms of justice, absolutely, we also keep our eyes on the only one who will achieve justice for the poor and needy. And there's something different about how Jesus does justice. All the, the efforts of justice in their world, they, they tend to happen from a distance, from, from people who are, are working in you know, nonprofit offices or corporate offices or law firms, all, all really good things, but there's almost always a distance between the ones that are working for justice and those who need it. And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't stay off at a distance from our need of justice, from our hurt, from our pain, from our darkness, but he personally comes. He leaves the light and enters the darkness. He doesn't like commute in and out from heaven, but he moves into where we are. He moves into our need and our brokenness. He steps into our world of hurt and, and remakes it from the inside out. Now, second thing, what did he come to do? I'm already getting into it, so I'll just roll with it. The rest of the passage is describing the, the end result and the, really the paradise of the victory of Jesus. Let's go to verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And then verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now what did Jesus come to do? Quite simply, he came to bring peace on earth. He came to, to set the world right. He came to bring all of creation into harmony, to take the chaos and turn it into order, to take the destruction and turn it into new life. All the sad things undone, all the good things magnified forever. See, it was man's sin in, in the garden, all the way back in the Garden of Eden that brought upon our world and, and all of creation this curse. Because of the, the sin of man, the rebellion of man, that which exists in all of our hearts, this curse has been placed on our creation, on our world. And so everything is out of order. Everything is not as it should be. Sickness now, now plagues us from, from the routine cold to the most advanced cancer. Nature itself is in a state of chaos. There's thorns on every flower. There's tsunamis that take the lives of thousands. There's injustice everywhere we look, world hunger, abortion, wars all over the earth, no peace between peoples and nations. This is all 
the work of the curse. All of creation is, is corrupted and, and barreling towards death and destruction. I mean, you've got to feel that, right? You look at your, your work and you see that your work works against you. You try to do any kind of gardening at all. You see that it's going to be way more difficult than you expected. Every relationship is far more difficult than it should be because of the curse. And the curse is what Jesus came to undo. Romans 5, it says that through Adam all die, but also through the second Adam, Jesus, all will live. Maybe you remember the Christmas hymn, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Jesus came to turn back the effects of the curse and not to just undo it and lead us back to like the original place, but to take us somewhere even more glorious and beautiful. He's come to release all of creation from its captivity. He's come to set the prisoners free. This is what Isaiah 11 is, is promising. It's what it's envisioning, that one day there will be peace on the earth. And the victory of Jesus, it's not merely spiritual, but it's physical. He doesn't just draw us up into the clouds the moment that we put our faith in him. He doesn't come down and destroy the world, but instead he raises us up to new life. In the end, he will give us resurrection bodies and he will renew all of creation. A new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus' victory, it's both deeply personal and it's global. It's, it's cosmic. It's deeply personal because everyone who believes in him is raised to eternal life, but it also touches the very core of your being. There is no ounce of brokenness in you that won't one day be healed. No, no sickness that won't be cured so I want you to think, where do you long for this kind of freedom? Where in your life do you long for healing and liberation? Maybe like a lot of us, you've struggled with depression or anxiety for many years. Maybe your marriage or family relationships feel strained to breaking point. Maybe you've been severely wounded by someone else and you, and you can't believe that you're not more healed by now. Maybe you just feel so far from God that you can't even imagine what healing and freedom and peace would look like. Jesus' victory is deeply personal, but it's also completely global. It's, it's cosmic. What he's doing in you, he will do in all of creation, everything being made new, injustice ended forever, sin is crushed, death is defeated. The victory of Jesus is also the answer to every form of brokenness in our world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And so if you're like me, the very next question you have is, when? When, Lord? When does this happen? Has it already happened? If it's, if it's related to Jesus' birth, does that mean it's happened? Or does it mean that it will happen when he comes back? And the answer, as we've been saying throughout this series, is yes in both. That his victory has been achieved. Like the work isn't still ahead of Jesus. 
Part of our hope is that he has actually done the hard thing. We're not like hoping that he might do the hard thing later. It's done. It's finished. He did it on the cross and he rose from the grave. And so he has all power and authority over all the sin and brokenness in the world. He has defeated death. And yet the full effects of his victory are not, are not fully here yet. The victory has been won, but the fruits of it we're still waiting on. The extent of his victory, which is everything, everywhere, we're still waiting on. I love how, how Ray Ortland puts it. He says, even now the fullness of his kingdom is only an inch away. All that stands between the present moment and the promised future is the command of God. Isaiah is not telling us when, He's telling us who, and that should be enough for us. And I love that. The question is not when, as much as I want the answer to when, like when is my body going to be fully restored? When are all the good things going to happen? But rather, who, who, who is our hope? Who can we put our trust, our hope in that won't let us down? And the answer is a person, it's Jesus. That's the third thing. Can we put our hope in him? I mean, every preacher is going to say that, right? Like, put your hope in Jesus. That's not a surprise. But why? Why do we know we can put our hope in Jesus? To quote the uh, Shawshank Redemption like a true middle-aged guy, (laughs) hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. Now, hope is dangerous. Why? Because it sets us up for disappointment, right? Don't you feel that? It's so much easier to just lower your expectations, right? I mean, I've probably said that before. Like, the secret to a happy life is just low expectations, you know? You're never disappointed. And I'm joking when, I'm, when I say that, I promise, mostly. But we have so much of that inside of us, right? Just lower your expectations. Don't expect too much. Don't trust too much. Hope is is disappearing from our world. Did you know you can Google a word? I love this. I do it all the time. And you can find out how often it's been used in published literature relative to the last 200 years. All right, I'm going to show you the the image for hope. We got that, Kyle? This this is hope since 1800. It's, It's gone down. Maybe there's a little blip at the end. I don't really trust it. But hope... Hope is disappearing from our world. It is disappearing from our vocabulary. And if you ask, well, if if hope is disappearing in our world, what is taking its place? I think my answer would be cynicism. This cynical world that we live in, cynicism is a disposition of, of just hard pessimism toward the world. It's a distrust of others. It's giving up on hope. We become cynical because it's easier right? It's easier than hope. It doesn't cost as much, right now that is. And then this cynicism just just seeps out of us. I mean, if we can be real and just say cynical people, the literal worst, right? (laughs) Cynical people are the worst. And I say that about myself as an often very cynical person. And so, wouldn't you like to know what the chart of the word cynicism has looked like in the last 200 years. We've got it for you. There it is. You might expect high resolution like PNG images, not here, not at Trinity. 
This is our level of tech savvy, or rather my level of tech savvy. Suffice it to say, cynicism is going up. That's what I need you to see. Hope, let, let the podcast listener understand, hope down, cynicism up. That's what's happening on the screens. Cynicism is the air we breathe. This is the world we live in. How, how could it not affect us? How could it not become the way slowly and over time we relate to God and his promises? I want you to think about what does hope look like for you? Like for you right now. Where do you have a strong sense that your future will be bright, that, that others are trustworthy, that good will triumph in the end, that you will find peace? Where instead have you become cynical, not taking risks, not trusting others, not expecting anything good? Now, on the one hand, cynicism makes a lot of sense. I mean, I just talked about the curse. I just talked about the brokenness of this world. And so as Christians, in a sense, we should have very low expectations for the world. We should never be surprised by the brokenness of the world. We should never be surprised if non-Christians act like non-Christians, if even Christians are still kind of a mess and very, very difficult because we still have all of this brokenness happening within us. And so we should never be surprised by cynicism or, or by the brokenness of our world. And yet there is something different about us because we are in Christ. We are joined to Christ. We are now people of hope. We are a community of relentless hope. We have something that that no one else has because of what Christ has done for us. And so I want to ask you, what is it that you're basing your life on? What is it that's at the center of your life? What are you most hoping will give you peace in the end? I'll admit it's so easy for me. I constantly try to find my identity and worth and like my performance and in others' view of me or success. Even after, you know, I don't know how many hours of prayer and scripture reading and good books and a couple decades of walking closely with the Lord and even ministry and teaching this on this stuff, I still struggle so much to believe I'm a beloved child of God. So difficult for me to actually live from that security. Believe that that's enough. We have this deep inner capacity for hope because it's what we were made for. It's why you have that within you and yet it gets bent in all the wrong directions. Typically for us, it gets pointed towards good things, but they're just not God, right? A relationship that we think is going to solve everything for us. A, a job, some, some relief from suffering or, or sickness. If, if only we get this one thing, then we will have peace. Have you ever said that? I think every one of us say that all the time. If only this, if, or if only that. This, there's just this one nagging thing. And if that could change... But the reality is that thing, no matter how good it even is, it it begins to rule us. We begin to to need it more than anything, more than even God. And nothing else will be a good ruler in that place. Nothing else will serve you well in the center of your life. Because it will either completely fail you, or if you get it, something else will just replace it. And we'll be saying, if only, about something else. 
Nothing else will satisfy that place in your life. So what we're saying today is another kind of life is available. Another way of doing life is available. You don't have to live in fear or without hope. Only one thing is designed to be at the center of your life. And and it's a person and he is calling out to you right now. He He is wooing you to himself, drawing you, inviting you to himself, saying, come to me. Jesus is the hope of the world. He's, he is the joy of every longing heart. I'm hitting all the Advent hymns today. We're about to sing one. I don't make a lot of demands to the worship team, and I'm like, I want one Advent hymn today on the anniversary. We can do that in September. Why would we just sing about the birth of Jesus four Sundays a year? Not here. Nope, we do five or so, maybe six. Think about it, Jesus' wisdom compared to the wisdom of the world. I mean, Jesus has the spirit of knowledge and understanding resting on him. His wisdom far surpasses the wisdom of the world, right? Jesus' power versus the power of the world. His power is pure and good. He's, He's not seeped in human pride and ego like the rest of us. His power is is always to do what's right and good, what's beautiful, to bind up the weak and broken. We can put our hope in him because he laid down his life for us. He gave his very life for us. We can put our hope in him because he'll never leave us or fail us. Tim Keller has said, anything except Jesus will desert you in the end and disappoint you along the way. Anything else will desert you in the end and disappoint you along the way. Again, I'll be honest, I put so much of my hope in this world and and just, for me, it's like a pain-free life. I just want a a pain-free heart I've been hurt. I've felt pain. I don't like it. I don't like when others are in pain. I just want a pain-free heart. So often that's what's, what's driving me at the center of my life. Of course that's going to fail me in the end. Of course that's going to disappoint me all along the way. I think it's a good thing to hope in Jesus's healing and his power to to heal our bodies, heal our hearts, transform us, to to make our lives better here and now. But our ultimate hope is not in our circumstances getting better. Our ultimate hope is Christ himself. We don't just love God for what he can do for us, but we love him for who he is and because he is infinitely satisfying. If we aim to get everything the world has to offer, we'll miss out on everything. But if we aim for God himself, we get God and then everything else is thrown in. All of the renewed creation, all of the good thing comes eventually if our focus is on God himself. Jesus is the hope of the world. The only person or thing in all of the universe worthy of our hope. This passage says one day the whole earth will be his holy mountain. 
That's an image calling back to Mount Sinai when the Spirit of God, the presence of God descended in power. One day, the whole earth will become like that holy mountain. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the way the seas cover the earth right now. An ocean of God's glory covering us forever and ever. This is our future hope, but it's available today, like right now, because it's a person. The wisdom is here. The power is here. His justice is here. His self-giving love is here. What else would you base your life on? The hope of the world has come. Put your hope in him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for who you are, for your greatness and your glory and your might, for your mercy and your gentleness and your compassion. We thank you that you have not left us to our, to our own, to our own devices, our own human struggles. You have not left us to die under the curse, but you have sent your own son at immense personal cost to yourself. At the cost of everything to you, Lord Jesus, you laid down your life for us. You rose again in, in power and it feels almost too good to be true. And so we have to remind ourselves of it over and over and over. We have been raised to new life. The old is gone and the new has come. We are set free. To make sure you knew we got it, you set your own Holy Spirit on us in our hearts. Not just for a moment like the Old Testament, not just for a task, but you cover us in your own spirit. We're full of your spirit. Lord God, for what you're doing in this church and in the lives of each person here, I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I've never seen anything like it. I just want it to last and last forever. Father, we thank you for these last five years. We thank you for the incredible work of healing and freedom, restoration, rest, renewal that you are doing in our midst. And we know that this church is, is not just for us, but it's for the future. It's for those who aren't here. It's for, for our children, for those who will come in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Lord, may this just be the beginning of what you want to do here. Just, just the, the tiny little beginning of a great movement of your spirit poured out, not just on Trinity, but on the churches and ministries of our city and of our region. Lord, come, come in all of your fullness. We seek your face. Come, Lord, we want more of you. Deeply transform us as individuals, but do the cosmic thing too. Set everything right. Heal our broken world. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray.